In 2012, a couple psychopathic philosophers, uh, high off of their own intellectual flatulence, published a piece in the Journal of Medical Ethics called After Birth Abortion, Why Should the Baby Live? <laughs> the article was initially removed from the journalist's website after a harsh reaction against it. But to these philosophers' credit, they were merely following the premises of progressivism to their most heinous and horrific conclusions. Ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. The problem for us is the same problem man has historically failed to address. Identifying and eliminating dangerous ideas and premises before they take root and begin bearing their nasty fruit. We will do our best to weed out those ideas before it's too late. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Welcome to the show today, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Episode 155, exciting to see the podcast continuing to grow and appreciate all of your comments, responses, and sharing as well. Please give us a rating and review. Let us know what you think. It really helps in this moment. And this is an episode you're going to want to share with pro-choice friends in your life, okay? <clears throat> uh, be they sort of moderate, uh, masquerading as Christians, or full-on progressive activists who view abortion as a blessing of liberty. Because this is an episode where we're going to show how even for those who are pro-choice, in affirming the premises of abortion, you're only putting into place the premises that justify your own enslavement. We're going to show the progression and the intellectual consistency of these bad ideas and the heinous conclusions they lead to, conclusions that most pro-choice individuals in your life will not want to affirm. <laughs> they will want to reject, but they're the natural progression of the initial premises. And if you don't like the consequences of your worldview, as I frequently say, uh, you should change it. <laughs> you should abandon it and not double down and look like an idiot because you just have to cling to your religiously and dogmatically held beliefs, you should abandon them if the conclusions are so damning. So this 2012 piece in the journal Medical Ethics uh, caused an absolute tsunami in the pro-life movement <clears throat> and in the broader abortion debate. It's been nearly a decade since it was initially written and almost a decade since it was released, and it was called After Birth Abortion, Why Should the Baby Live? Here are the two philosophers, okay, and authors behind this piece. A woman by the name of Dr. Francesca Minerva. She's a research fellow now at the University of Milan and worked as a postdoc at University of Melbourne, University of Ghent, and at Warwick University, but she was at the University of Melbourne uh, Melbourne at the time that this was published. Uh, really goes to show you uh, the type of individuals who are leading the intellectual life in Canada, right? <laughs> and now we're literally watching Canada um, fall as well. Or is this uh, Melbourne? Let's see. Is that Australia, I believe? Um, we're, we're watching Australia completely fall in cave. And uh, people are being arrested if they're on a walk or on a run. Uh, right now. Uh, Dr. Alberto Gubellini, Gibellini, not sure how to pronounce it, senior research fellow at the University of Oxford Center for Practical Ethics with a PhD in philosophy from the University of Milan, so was also there with Dr. Francesca Minerva and worked at the University of Melbourne, Melbourne and was there at the same time as Dr. Francesca Minerva. So they published this uh, while they were both at the University of Melbourne and um, it is rejected by many pro-choice philosophers and activists today, uh, but only because they're not comfortable affirming the final conclusions of their own worldview. These philosophers, to their credit, um, are intellectually consistent enough and honest enough to say, yeah, I mean, this is where this leads, right? So this is important because for those who don't care about the humanity of the unborn, who don't care about protecting children in the womb, who think they're non-persons and they embrace abortion, the consequences of that embrace of abortion is that if we can kill a child in the womb, why not outside the womb? Why not take away your rights? Because the, the arguments used 
to remove the personhood away from the pre-born work equally well to remove the personhood from certain subsets of the born human race who also don't meet sort of the cognitive ability litmus test or checkboxes for personhood. You can't arbitrarily draw a line at birth to spare the newborn if there are examples of newborn people and older people who also fail to meet that litmus test that is used to remove the personhood of the unborn. So the primary argument of this piece, why should the baby live after birth abortion, is this. They argue that the killing of newborn babies should be permitted in any situation where abortion is permitted. Because, they argue, there is no essential difference between the fetus and the newborn. Right Now, this is, of course, the response of pro-lifers to pro-choicers when they make their argument. We say there is no essential or value-giving difference between the embryonic human being that you once were and the adult that you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. And any difference you point out between the pre-born and the born is a difference you'll find amongst all born people as well. Well, the authors of this um, piece say, yeah, that's right. And so we shouldn't spare the newborn from being killed through infanticide or what they call afterbirth abortion. So let's pause really quick before I read some of the actual quotes from this article. Um, in a healthy society, uh, these people would be thrown in jail. Yeah. Um, at the very least, they would be fired and removed from any teaching position for the rest of their life. Um, and they would be ostracized from polite society. Oh, Seth, you're for cancel culture? Yeah. Yeah, in the right way. Just like every society has, has, has canceled, if you want to use that term, has canceled certain ideas and people who espouse and defend and promulgate ideas from polite society. Every society and culture has standards, okay? It's just a matter of what standards and, and who, is, who is wielding political power to create certain societal standards. Do you see what I mean? Um, you know, would you... Would you say that, well, you know, we need a free marketplace of ideas and all ideas need to be welcomed because I'm a free speech absolutist. I'm a conservative. Free speech the right to free speech. And, and so, you know, um, there's my buddy at work and, you know, sometimes he walks up to the water fountain uh, and, you know, and he says, Zig Heil, uh, Hail Hitler. And, uh, but, you know, free speech, man, you know. No, no, that person would be fired, okay? <laughs> um, we wouldn't, we wouldn't uh, allow that type of ideas to just exist in a free marketplace in corporate America, um, in our churches, certainly not, um, or in broader society. And that's a good thing, right? You, you don't want to create a place for KKK members in polite society, okay? So every society and culture has standards. A healthy society would fire these types of individuals from any teaching position for de defending and espousing espousing actual infanticide, like the type of infanticide that we lambast other cultures for participating in, right? Aztecs and other sort of cult, cultish um, religious groups who believe that they were supposed to sacrifice their babies to sort of the, the weather gods or the sex gods to, you know, improve their own life. And, and we, we dig up these bones of human beings and infants that were sacrificed and we're horrified by, by the atrocities that were committed against these human beings. Thank God we're so much more civilized, right? While you have people being, being paid you know, between their books and writings, probably hundreds of thousands of dollars, um, who believe and defend the same thing, who actually champion it. Um, so let's just be very clear about what we're talking about, okay? I mean, these, these people are psychopaths, absolutely degenerate psychopaths um, who should either be thrown in jail or should be canceled from polite society um, and treated as such um, because in order to maintain a healthy cultural compass and moral compass, you do have to label some things inexcusable. Um, and then with the hope, of course, is that those people can be brought back into the the, the healthy social fabric um, by recognizing how debased their ideas are, right? From the Christian worldview, we talk about this in our faith, right? We talk about how if, if a person sins against you, to, the scripture says, go take it to him, right? If he doesn't listen, bring to others. If he doesn't listen, you know, bring, bring it before the church, right? And if he doesn't listen, then you, um, you excuse him from the church and you treat him as a pagan and a tax collector, meaning like still love you, brother, but you're not welcome here, okay? Um, we don't believe that you're a Christian. We don't believe 
um, that you are walking in the way of the Lord, and we believe that you'll be damned. And so out of love for you, with the hope that you'll come back to the fold, um, we're, we're you know, canceling you, right? We're, we're ostracizing you. We're saying, uh, get away from me. Get behind me, Satan. Um, and that's not done because out of vindictiveness or hatred toward others. It's done with the hope that, that in treating such serious matters so seriously, the other person will realize how out of touch they are. Okay, a healthy society should function the same way, but we are, um, remo- we are moving further and further away from anything resembling a healthy American society and culture the last 18 months uh, being an escalation um, and evidence of that, of course. Okay, so what are some of, the, um, what are some of the, the arguments that this piece makes after birth abortion? Why should the baby live? Now, obviously, you know people like Peter Singer, at Princeton University have, have, have uh, intellectually defended infanticide up to about one year old of the baby um, for years. Uh, through the 90s and 2000s, he's been articulating and defending this, most, most, uh, popular, most famously in his book, Practical Ethics. Um, but you know this article co- caused quite the ruckus and I think is beginning to be adopted by more and more pro-abortion activists today um, because ideas have consequences. So here are some pieces. We'll, we'll get into the problems with it in a little bit, um, and we'll, we'll give you a link to this article um, because, again, it's in the small things that the rot grows. Okay, So we need to identify and weed out rot, mold, early, Okay, before it takes over the entire banister at home, before it starts taking root in the soil and, and, and bearing nasty weeds and, and nasty fruit all over the place, at which point so many Americans have already sort of adopted the premises that it's very difficult to weed out. So we're going to attempt to do that now and, and read some of these pieces for you. So they say, a serious philosophical problem arises when the same conditions that would have justified abortion become known after birth. <laughs> right? Oh, this is, this is difficult. I mean, the same conditions that we justify abortion, those conditions are also appearing in the newborn. So in such cases, we need to assess facts in order to decide whether the same arguments that apply to killing a human fetus can also be consistently applied to killing a newborn human. Okay, that's, that's one piece, one paragraph from their, their article. They go on and say, an examination of 18 European registries <clears throat> reveals that between 2005 and 2009, only the 64% of Down syndrome cases were diagnosed through prenatal testing. This percentage indicates that Considering only the European areas under examination, about 1,700 infants were born with Down syndrome without parents being aware of it before birth. Oh no, they couldn't kill them before birth? They couldn't exercise their eugenics before birth? And then their baby was born and they learned it had Down syndrome afterwards? Aw shucks, aw nuts. Because the law doesn't let us kill infants after they're born. Aw nuts, that's what they're saying. They continue and say, once these children are born, There is no choice for the parents but to keep the child, which sometimes is exactly what they would not have done if the disease had been diagnosed before birth. Okay, so now, so they're setting up eugenics right here, and then they continue. They say, people with Down syndrome, as well as people affected by many other severe disabilities, are often reported to be happy. Nonetheless, to bring up such children might be an unbearable burden on the family and on society as a whole when the state economically provides for their care. On these grounds, the fact that a fetus has the potential to become a person who will have an at least acceptable life is no reason for prohibiting abortion. (laughs) And then listen to this. Therefore, we argue that when circumstances occur after birth, such that they would have justified abortion, what we call after-birth abortion should be permissible, okay? So they're saying that you need to be able to murder um, babies after birth, whether with Down syndrome or not. And even though we know the studies about how Down syndrome uh, children and adults report some of the highest levels of happiness, they say, nonetheless, it doesn't really matter because that might be a burden on the family and as a society. So, you know, you're a burden, you're a drag on society, you're unwanted, so we're just going to kill you um, because, you know, I just got to make a few more bucks. I got to increase my salary and my sales um, to pursue my vision of the good life. And if other human beings have to be sacrificed on the altar, of my vision of the good life, so be it. That's what they're saying, okay? Um, They say, we propose to call this practice after-birth abortion rather than infanticide to emphasize that the moral status of the individual killed is comparable with that of a fetus. 
on which abortions in the traditional sense are performed, rather than to that of a child. Therefore, we claim that killing a newborn could be ethically permissible in all the circumstances where abortion would be. Okay, they couldn't be any clearer, right? Like, and, and these, these people have gone on to do dissertations. They've gone on to continue teaching at different universities. They've gone on, I'm sure, to make good money on books um, and serve as advisors to sort of political administrations, I'm sure, um, as is very common. Um, and this is what, they're, they're very honest with what they're saying. There's no reason to spare newborn babies um, murder if, if the same arguments that we use to dehumanize the unborn also can be used to dehumanize the born. If the newborn doesn't meet the cognitive ability functional checkbox that we demand the unborn meet, then both can be killed, um, and they can be killed for the same reasons. They say the moral status of an infant is equivalent to that of a fetus in the sense that both lack those properties that justify the attribution of a right to life to an individual. That's what I just said. Both lack the, the, um, the moral status because both lack the properties that would grant a moral status. Now, you and I, of course, would say, well, the only thing that's required to have personhood and a right to life, an inalienable right to life, is that you're a human being. Because our human nature is the only thing we have in common. If you ground human rights in anything but the only thing we have in common, you endanger human rights for all individuals. Um, but they understand that. They're affirming that, and they have no problem with that. Um, let's see. They say, both a fetus and a newborn certainly are human beings and potential persons. <laughs> potential persons, but neither is a person in the sense of a subject of a moral right to life. They say, we take person to mean an individual who is capable of attributing to her own existence some basic value such that being deprived of this existence represents a loss to her. In other words, they're saying, you don't have a right to life unless you know you have a right to life. You don't have a right to life unless you value your own life and have the mental structure and functioning in place such that you are capable of understanding values. Like, I value my own life. I, I don't want to be killed. Until you have that ability, then you actually don't have a right to life. Pr pretty shocking. <laughs> they say... Um, this means that many non-human animals and mentally retarded human individuals are persons, but that all the individuals who are not in the condition of attributing any value to their own existence are not persons. Merely being human is not in itself a reason for ascribing someone a right to life. <laughs> In other words, not all humans are persons. Oh, wait, we've heard that one before. <laughs> we've heard that one before. That's what the KKK believed. That's what Democrats in the 1850s believed. Uh, really, I mean, for decades after that even. Uh, and that's what, the, that's what the Nazis believed. Not all humans are persons. Being human is not enough to ground your rights. Uh-oh, then what is? Well, whatever cognitive abilities, traits, and functions the high priests of secular progressivism, which these philosophers uh, 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 believe themselves to be, deem are required for a human to become a person. They say, our point here is that although it is hard to exactly determine when a subject starts or ceases to be a person, um, a necessary condition for a subject to have a right to X is that she is harmed by a decision to deprive her of X. So in other words, that um, you don't have a right to something unless you're harmed by being deprived of that thing and you're aware of the fact that you were deprived of that thing and you're aware of the fact that you were harmed in being deprived of that thing. Uh, and so unless you have the mental maturity and cognitive abilities that have developed such that you're aware that you're being harmed and being deprived of something, then you're not harmed at all, which means you don't have a right to that thing, which means you're not a person. Yes, these are the type of philosophical gymnastics that are required to try to pull off the um, very difficult um, job, right, and goal of making the pro-choice position intellectually tenable. Boy, do they have to double down and work hard to make the position not all humans are persons and the preborn and maybe newborn can be killed to make that palatable 
acceptable to the American public or to the, to the world population. These people, of course, are not Americans. Um, look how hard they have to work. And now you're just probably thinking like, this is all BS, right? This is so stupid, right? Um, but again, I mean, sometimes it takes a PhD to believe some of the stupidest things, right? Many of the people who believe that men can be women and women can be men, many of the people who believe that blacks were not persons and Jews were not persons were very um, smart. They had a lot of credentials. They went to good universities. <laughs> uh, but they believe some of the most stupid, heinous things that we now uh, with all of our moral clarity on those historical injustices realize we're so wrong. Okay, they say, if a potential person like a fetus and a newborn does not become an actual person, <laughs> you're just potential, like you and us, then there is neither an actual nor a future person who can be harmed, which means that there is no harm at all. So if you ask one of us, they're saying us, the authors, if you ask one of us if we would have been harmed had our parents decided to kill us when we were fetuses or newborns, our answer is no, because they would have harmed someone who does not exist. The us whom you are asking the question, which means no one, and if no one is harmed, then no harm occurred. <laughs> That's a I, if you don't understand this, it's probably just because you're not very smart and you didn't go to Yale or to Oxford and, and you're, just, you're just a rube. You're just an unwashed, probably unvaccinated rube. By the way, this uh, one of the authors here, the, Dr. Alberto Gubellini, if you Google him, he has a bunch of pieces on, on vaccinations, right, and the ethics of, of being vaccinated. So, of course, these people push all of the progressive creeds um, and you're just stupid if you, if you can't ascend to their, to, to their credentialism, right, of course. So um, what are they saying here? Well, they're saying that the real you is not your body. There's a difference between the real you, your body, which you had while you were developing in the womb and when you had when you were born, and real persons, right? And we're going to get to that in a second. But let me lay out exactly the argument in this piece um, through a syllogism with, with their premises and their conclusions, okay? Their conclusion. So here are the premises to put it in a very sort of succinct uh, way. Premise one in this article is they say neither fetuses or newborns are actual persons, though each is a potential person in virtue of being biologically human, right? They're cellularly human. They have human DNA, but they're not persons. They're potential persons. Premise two, an actual person, as opposed to a potential one, is someone with a serious right to life. So real persons have a right to life. Premise three, to have a serious right to life, you must value your own existence. Premise four, fetuses and newborns do not value their existence and thus are not actual persons, only potential persons. Premise four, the interests of actual persons, the parents and the family, override the interests of potential persons, fetuses and newborns. Conclusion, Therefore, abortion and infanticide are both morally permissible when in the best interest of actual persons, uh, the mother, the, the father, the family, society, right? Those are actual persons, uh, unborn human beings, babies. Yeah, babies aren't persons, um, and we can kill them because they're potential persons. Um, but, you know, you don't become an actual person until you can be aware of the fact that you're being harmed and being deprived of something. And once you have that mental construct and ability, then you're an actual person. And I've granted you personhood because I view myself as a deity, as a god who gets to decide who lives and who dies and who is in and out of the human family. So they say to be harmed by abortion or infanticide, you must be an actual person, an individual capable of desiring an individual capable of desiring the different situation you would be in had you not been harmed. <laughs> that, that's an actual person, is, is, to, is to have the ability of being aware of the, of, the, of the different future you'd be in had you not been murdered or killed. And if at that newborn stage, you're not able to realize the future position you'll be in if you're not killed now, then you're not an actual person, you're a potential person. Makes sense, right? Right? It makes sense. It's very intellectual. It's very refined, right? This is why these people seem to literally be high, high off of their own intellectual flatulence um, that they think is just is very smart, right? It's very progressive. So the problem with this is that in order to be aware of the fact that you'd be in a different situation had you not been killed now, you must have the mental development necessary to have desires 
to have desires in the first place. If you don't have a desire for a right to life or a desire for a future, um, then you won't be aware of the fact that you're denied that future. But the fetus and the newborn fail that test, right? <clears throat> the fetus and the newborn don't desire a right to life, right? They're not, they're not like aware of themselves as an autonomous, unique individual who's never existed before and will never exist again and have a very exciting uh, desire for what their two-year-old birthday will be like. And, and then when they're three and four and how great it will be to be older and, and have these desires for their future. They don't, they don't have that ability yet. And so the fetus and the newborn would both fail that test, that test of the mental, mental development necessary uh, to, to desire a right to life and to be aware of the fact, to be aware of the different situation you'd be in had you not been killed now. I know this sounds stupid and ridiculous because it is, okay? <laughs> That's how hard these people have to work to defend abortion though, okay? So the, the, the belief of these authors is that neither the fetus or the newborn are harmed if they're killed because they're not persons. They're just potential persons and only actual persons have a right to life. So they acknowledge in this article that yes, you might be harmed now as a person, like let's say if your mother abused drugs during pregnancy, because now the actual you at 18 um, has, has damage because of your mother's drug use, but they will say you weren't harmed then. <laughs> you weren't harmed then as the fetus because there was no you present to harm. There was only a potential you, even though the actual present you now is experiencing the harm done to you at the potential person stage. <laughs> I'm sorry. So it's, it's hard to not laugh at this type of bigotry. Um, you know, I picture these people just, just sitting around, you know, smoking a doobie, you know, just sitting around wrapping up um, that blunt and, and getting high and being like, hey, man, you know, some humans are not persons, man. You know, if, if, if you don't, if you're so high right now that I kill you, and you don't know that you were killed and denied future opportunities to get high, man, then maybe I didn't deny you that right to because you weren't aware of your ability to, to desire that future high hit, man. Yeah. <laughs> this is so stupid. But again, you, if you want to know what the, what the dominant worldview assumptions of the culture in 30 years will be, Look at the university now. Okay, the mark the universities function as a cultural crystal globe. This has been true for thousands of years, okay? The ideas promulgated, articulated, and refined in the academy, taught to the next generation, then becomes over time the dominant normal view held in a society. So we have to take these stupid ideas that are discussed in the universities very seriously. Okay as high as these people seem to be. Now, this view that I just laid out to you that are, they're articulating in this piece is also called the mental continuity view. The mental continuity view. And the belief is that you are not the same being today that you were at the embryonic stage, the fetal stage, or the newborn stage, right? Be because, right, they're, they're, they're saying actual persons um, are those that have the mental capacity necessary for memories, for desires, and for self-awareness. And so until you have that capacity and ability, right, then whatever human being you are is not the real you because you're not an actual person yet. So there, there has to be a continuity of the, of, the, of the mental capacity necessary to be aware of your right to life and your desires for a right to life. That's why they call it the mental continuity view. So they'll say, though your biological life began at conception as a human being, what matters is mental continuity, not biological continuity. Mental life, not, not mere bodily or human life. That's what defines you as a person with rights, is your mental continuity. So in other words, the real you is not your body. <laughs> the real you is your thoughts, your desires, your memories, particularly the continuity of your memory and your awareness of yourself as an autonomous, unique individual that has desires to go on living, that has a desire for a future. That's the real you, right? So not all humans are persons. You may be a human, but that's not the real you because personhood, actual persons, is different than biological humans. <laughs> Since mental continuity, of course, does not stretch back 
to the embryonic, fetal, and newborn stage, then they claim you are not the same being today as the one conceived by your parents. You are not the same being today, listening to me explain these stupid arguments, that you were when you were in your mother's womb or that you were when you were born. So, a per so thus a person is a being that has awareness of his or her existence over time and in different places with the capacity for wants and plans for the future. Now, if you're a human <laughs> incapable of those traits, then you're not a person. Sorry. <laughs> it might be a human being. It might have human DNA. Human nature might be the only thing we all have in common. But if you don't have an awareness of yourself and desires for a future and plans for a future and uh, memories and mental continuity, then you're not a person yet, right? Now, Peter Singer, in his book, Practical Ethics, um, explains that you can't arbitrarily um, spare the newborn um, inclusion in personhood if the arguments used to justify abortion based off of mental capacities are also lacking in the newborn, then both are disqualified from the community of persons. So Peter Singer was honest enough to sort of admit this. Peter Singer says in his book, Practical Ethics, the embryo, the later fetus, the profoundly intellectually disabled child, even the newborn infant, are all indisputably members of the species Homo sapiens, but none are self-aware or have a sense of the future or the capacity to relate to others, right? Do you see that? So he, like the authors of this article, are grounding actual personhood and persons and the right to life, not in the human nature of the entity or the humanity of the entity, but in these certain capacities and functions. This is what we call functionalism, right? If you can't function in certain ways, you're not a person. What are those functions? Well, the ability of self-awareness, the ability to relate to others, to have a sense of the future, to have a desire for a future. That's what Singer says here. None are self-aware. None have a sense of the future or a capacity to relate to others. So the embryo, the later fetus, and the newborn infant, he says, would therefore both be disqualified from the community of persons and the right to life. So let's summarize the mental continuity view as follows. Premise one, in order to be harmed, you must be capable of experiencing harm. Premise two, to experience harm, you must first exist as a person. Premise three, to exist as a person, you must value your existence. Premise four, as a fetus or newborn, you are not capable of valuing your existence. Premise five, thus you did not exist when you were a fetus and a newborn. You, the real person, did not exist. Conclusion, therefore, neither abortion or infanticide would have harmed you because the real you is not your body. The real you is your desires, your self-awareness, your cognitive abilities, your mental continuity, your desires for a future and a right to life. Okay, so what's wrong with this argument and the argument in this article? Let's try to weed out the bigoted, dangerous premises and ideas at work in this article now, even though it was published 10 years ago. Um, and this is something that you can share with the pro-choice friends in your life. Point out, okay, that the cognitive ability litmus test that the pro-choicer uses to deny personhood to the pre-born will also work just as well to deny personhood to the newborn. And then ask your pro-choice friends, hey, how many of you are comfortable with infanticide? Okay, because those same arguments work just as well if you're intellectually honest and consistent to justify killing the newborn as well. Okay, so let's go through some of these problems as Scott Klusendorf, uh, my mentor um, and colleague, so eloquently explains. Why assume in the first place that there can be such a thing as a human that is not a person? They're just assuming that in this article, right? That, that you may be a human, but you may not be a person. Why assume that in the first place, right? What's doing the moral work <clears throat> in their argument and in their piece? <clears throat> now, this is based off of the heresy body self-dualism or Gnostic dualism, right? A bunch of Christians used to believe this centuries ago, um, that, that uh, the, the real us was not our body, it was the soul. It was the intangible things, like our desires and self-awareness. <clears throat> and the body was so prone to sin <clears throat> that we needed to 
that the body was evil and bad. And so we needed to try to liberate ourselves from the, the desires of the body because, because the real us was the soul. And so there was, a, there was a difference between the human body, which is like a shell we live in, and the person, which is the consciousness and, and the soul, right? Well, the, the same thing is assumed by those defending the pro-choice belief. Remember, they, they say in no uncertain terms in this article that being a human being, uh, that in and of itself is not enough to be a person and have a right to life. So not all humans are persons, right? That you can be a human being, but not a person because the real you is not your body. And that's what body self-dualism believes. And that's intrinsic to their belief in this larger argument. They're assuming a priori that there is such a thing as a human that is not a person. <clears throat> the real you is not your body. It's just a shell for the real you because the real you are intangible things such as mental continuity, awareness of yourself, and having a desire to go on living. But such a view is counterintuitive. Body self-dualism is counterintuitive because you'd be forced to say things like, my body existed before I did. You'd have to say that because you had a body, a human body in the womb and at birth, but that wasn't the real you. The real you was something intangible. So the body existed before you did. Kind of weird. You'd have to admit <clears throat> excuse me, that you've never hugged your mother or a friend and you've never shaken your colleague's hand because you can't shake or hug thoughts, aims, and desires. Remember, that's the real person. That's what real people are. So the body's just a shell, so you've never hugged your actual mother. Also, body self-dualism is counterintuitive because if psychologists help cure multiple personality disorder, then they would be mass murderers because those with multiple personality disorder would have different desires, okay, for each of those different personalities, which would then each be an individual separate person with different desires because it's our desires and mental state that really ground our personhood. So if you cure multiple personality disorder, you'd be a mass murderer, murdering all of the separate personalities that have their own unique experiences and desires as well because real people are not bodies, they're souls, desires, consciousness, self-awareness. Kind of strange, uh, but we're not charging, no Democrats are, are suggesting that we charge um, psychologists who cure multiple personality disorder as, as, as homicides. Okay, body self-dualism also can't account for human equality, right? Because if personhood and the right to life is based on desires and self-awareness, but self-awareness and desires come in varying degrees, then those with a greater capacity for such traits would be more of a person than those with less, right? Desires come in varying degrees. Not all of us desire the right to go on living to the same degree. Not all of us have the same degree of self-awareness, right? Those who are, um, who have uh, uh, some certain mental disorder, those who have mental damage due to a car wreck or an accident, those in a coma, those with Down syndrome, um, those with trisomy 18. I mean, all of these different disorders wouldn't have the same self-awareness as every other human being. So self-awareness and desires in and of themselves come in varying degrees. But if you say personhood and the right to life is based on traits that come in varying degrees, it would follow then that the right to life and personhood come in varying degrees. So those with more of a desire and more of a self-awareness would be more of a person than those with less. So body self-dualism in grounding personhood and rights on things that come in varying degrees end up destroying human equality across the board. So. Again, why assume in the first place that there's such a thing as a human that is not a person, which is what, which is what they assume in this article called Afterbirth Abortions, Why Should the Baby Live? The second problem is why must I value my existence before it's wrong to kill me, <laughs> right? That's what they're saying. If you, if you don't value your own existence and then have a desire to continue that existence, um, then it's not wrong to kill you because you're not a person yet, you're a potential person, not an actual person. But why must I value my existence and have a desire for a few continued existence before it's wrong to kill me, right? Why is valuing my existence a value-giving trait in the first place? Can two-year-olds value their existence? No, not really, right? Because they don't have the mental development necessary to understand 
the future, to understand their own development, and to understand that they can be harmed by doing certain. This is why like one and two year olds will just like crawl right off the bed, crawl right off a cliff, right? And they're not aware of the fact that they're gonna kill themselves in doing that. Two year olds do not value their own existence yet. Can we kill them? Well, no, no, we would say that's not good. We shouldn't do that. So why must I value my existence before it's wrong to kill me? Thirdly, why must I experience harm in order to be harmed? Do you remember sort of the syllogism we laid out? They say that, that you must be able to experience harm and be aware of it in order to be actually harmed. And if you can't experience harm, okay, then you're not an actual person yet. But if you slit my throat while I'm under anesthesia, I will not experience hurt, but I've definitely still been harmed, okay? So unless these authors want to say that as long as you anesthetize people such that they feel no pain, you can kill them and you won't have done them harm because now they're just potential persons. I don't think they'd affirm that. They're just using that to justify killing the preborn because abortion is their sacrament. Uh, also, the instantaneous murder of an adult that was painless and unanticipated would also not be wrong because the victim did not experience her death as harm, right? That you could be killed like instantaneously and not experience harm or be aware of the fact that you were gonna experience harm, right? If, you if, if you're shot in the head in the right way, you will die immediately, it, right? If you're, if you're run over and smashed by an airplane or, a, or a, <laughs> a train, you could die immediately and not be aware of the fact that you were killed, but you were still harmed. So they're assuming that you aren't harmed unless you experience harm. Kind of a, kind of a strange uh, approach, but once again, remember how hard they have to try. With the type of philosophical pretzels they have to invert themselves into to try so hard to make the not all humans or persons pro-choice position seem tenable and seem palatable. Uh, fourthly, why assume that killing a human being is wrong because the victim values or desires their continued existence? Why? Why assume that killing a human being is only wrong because the victim values or desires their continued existence? In other words, do you have to desire continue living, continuing to live, to be harmed in being killed, right? For example, those with suicidality or severely depressed individuals by virtue of their condition do not desire to go on living, do they? The fact that you're suicidal means that you want to kill yourself or you're contemplating it. Severely depressed individuals often don't have any desire to go on living, but does that mean that they're not harmed if I were to murder them? No, they'd still be harmed, and I still would have violated an inalienable right that they have, correct? So even if though, though, they, though they don't desire to continue go on living, to continue to go on living, doesn't mean they don't have personhood and a right to life. And then you know, cult members can be brainwashed into not desiring their continued existence, right? But that doesn't mean that they don't have a right to life. Uh, Buddhists try to achieve nirvana, which is to eradicate all desires, including, I guess, the desire to go on living. But that doesn't mean that you wouldn't have violated their right to life if you murder them, right? A slave could be conditioned to not desire their freedom, right? I mean, you could do that, it has happened, but that doesn't mean that they're not harmed in being denied freedom, okay? So again, why assume that killing a human being is primarily wrong because the victim values or desires their continued existence? It could still be wrong to kill them and is, even if they don't value or desire their continued existence. But that's, again, what they're assuming in this piece. Fifthly, why assume that I cannot be wronged unless I am harmed? Why assume I cannot be wronged unless I am harmed? A failed assassination attempt harms no one, right? But the victim is still wronged. Um, I guess you gossiping and slandering me behind my back um, might not harm me if I never hear about it but I've still been wronged, haven't I? Okay, so why assume that I cannot be wronged unless I am harmed? And lastly, why accept that our right to not be harmed is based on characteristics that come in varying degrees and which none of us share equally, right? Because they're basing their entire view of personhood and the right to life of a human being or the, the right to life of a potential person, they say, right? They're saying, they're, you're a potential person, you're not an actual person, why? Because the potential person, they're saying in this article, doesn't have certain characteristics or functions 
that they're assuming grant or ground personhood. What? Namely, the desire for a continued existence, the awareness of your own rights, right? And the, the mental awareness of your future had you not been harmed by being killed at the newborn stage. So they're grounding the personhood and right to life of the potential person and human being in these characteristics which come in varying degrees. Desires, valuing your own life, desiring to not be harmed, these characteristics emerge gradually and not all of them come in the same degree, right? Do we all have the same level or degrees of desires for things? No. Do we all value our own life to the same degree? No. Do we all have the same exact degree of a desire to not be harmed? No. Right? Those will differ amongst the human species. But if that's what's doing the moral work in grounding personhood and the right to life, what would follow? It would follow that those with the greatest degree of desires, that those with the greatest degree of valuing their own life, and those with the greatest degree of desiring to not be harmed would be more of a person and have a greater right to life than those who possess those characteristics to a lesser degree, which would therefore mean that those with the greatest possession or degree of those desires could abuse, mistreat, or enslave those with less of a degree of those desires and capacities because they would be less persons. That's the problem with grounding personhood and a right to life in things that come in varying degrees. So why accept that our right to not be harmed is based on characteristics that come in varying degrees and which none of us share equally? By the way, pro-abortion philosopher and apologist and author Jeff McMahon, who is one of the most uh, popularly perceived persuasive defenders of abortion at the academic level, admits in one of his books that the pro-abortion position cannot make sense of or defend human equality. He's intellectually honest enough to say, I'm kind of freaked out, <laughs> he says. He says, I'm kind of freaked out and concerned with the fact that in grounding the unborn's right to life in capacities that come in varying degrees, uh, I'm also destroying the foundation of egalitarianism in, in human equality that I say I value so much because the newborn and other individuals also differ in their possession of those functions and capacities, which I say are necessary to ground a right to life in personhood. Here's what he says. He says, all this leaves me profoundly uncomfortable. It seems virtually unthinkable to abandon our egalitarian commitments. Yet the challenges to our position, what the challenges from pro-lifers he's saying, yet the challenges to our position support skepticism about the compatibility of our beliefs with the fact that the properties on which our moral status appears are all matters of degree. It is hard to avoid the sense that our egalitarian commitments rest on distressingly insecure foundations. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for being so honest about the dangerous conclusions where your premises naturally and necessarily lead you. <laughs> He's acknowledging that. He's saying, oh bleep, <laughs> right? This leaves me pretty freaked out that the, the properties on which our moral status appears come in varying degrees, but it's on those properties that I'm basing personhood and the right to life. And so that seems like a pretty insecure foundation for my own rights, <laughs> right? He's kind of saying what Lincoln articulated, that in, in granting southern, southern states' argument for slavery, southern states were actually putting into place the premises that justify their own enslavement. So that's the problems with this argument in this article. Those are sort of the, the six problems uh, and assumptions that they make and, and the problematic conclusions um, of those assumptions. So go re-listen to this again. Share this with a pro-choice friend. Have a conversation about it. Um, and make the point that, listen, pro-choicer, the, the arguments that you accept for abortion, yeah, those work equally well to deny personhood and the right to life to the born. Uh, these sick philosophers are just honest enough to actually celebrate that fact, um, to make the argument as they do that whatever arguments we use to justify killing the newborn, uh, the unborn should also be used to justify killing the newborn. That is their argument in this piece, that the killing of newborn babies should be permitted in any situation where abortion 
is performed. And here are last couple pieces from their uh, quotes from their article. They say, the alleged right of individuals, such as fetuses and newborns, to develop their potentiality, which someone defends, is overridden by the interests of actual people, parents, family, and society, to pursue their own, pursue their own well-being. Because of, as we have just argued, merely potential people cannot be harmed by not being brought into existence. So notice the euphemism they use there for abortion not being brought into existence, right? So whatever human being you killed in the womb or outside of the womb, because those were potential persons, the, the real person never existed. So you didn't kill a person, you just didn't allow a person to come into existence, so that person was never harmed because it wasn't a person, right? That you actually never existed in the first place. And that's why they said um, in their article, remember they said, so if you ask one of us if we would have been harmed, had our parents decided to kill us when we were fetuses or newborns, our answer is no, because they would have harmed someone who does not exist, right? They're saying the real us didn't exist at that stage either. They continue and say actual people's well-being could be threatened by the new, even if healthy child requiring energy, money, and care, which the family might happen to be in short supply of. <laughs> I mean, eugenics, right? They're saying, yeah, our well-being might be threatened by a new, even if healthy child who might be a societal and financial burden. They continue and say, sometimes this situation can be prevented through an abortion. But in some other cases, this is not possible. In these cases, since non-persons have no moral rights to life, there are no reasons for banning after-birth abortions. Okay, what does this look like in the real world? Hmm. Every senator in the Democrat Party, except was it except one, except Joe Manchin, uh, in the last two years, has vetoed the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act. Remember this? Uh, initially proposed by Senator Ben Sass out of Nebraska. The bill simply said if a baby survives a botched failed abortion and is born and is on the table, is no longer in a uterus, it's no longer in her body, then that baby has to be given the same level of medical attention and care as any other baby born under normal circumstances. If you fail to provide medical care to that child as you would any other baby born at a prematurely stage that was wanted by their parents, then you will be charged with the full extent of the law, with infanticide, okay? If the abortion providers, doctors, assistants, and abortionists failed to report the fact that a baby was born alive during a botched failed abortion, they'll also be charged. That was all this bill said. Pretty, uh, pretty common sense, you'd think, right? Wouldn't you think that you'd be able to get Democrats on, on board with that? Like, listen, hey, Democrats, listen, good news, you crazy weirdo abortion sickos. Nothing in this bill actually regulates killing babies in the womb. We're just saying if you survive a botched abortion and you're born and now baby's writhing around on the table in the doctor's arms, yeah, you shouldn't be able to kill it. And the reason for that is because you had Ralph Northam from Virginia at the time, remember, beginning of 2019, saying uh, if a baby's born and survives and, and is born, you know, I'll tell you what would happen. We'd make the baby comfortable. We'd resuscitate the baby if that's what the mother wanted, and then the mother and the physician would have a conversation. End quote. I quoted that verbatim, basically. Go, go fact check me. Ralph Northam said that, uh, governor of Virginia at the time on a radio show. What is he saying? He's talking about infanticide, isn't he? <clears throat> yeah, that's what he's talking about. And so Ben Sass proposed this, and we have examples sort of uh, that have been documented all across the country of babies being left to die or, or being actively killed um, after they've been born in a botched abortion. Okay, so, oh yeah, how many Democrat senators uh, voted in support of the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act? I think it was one. Okay, I think it was one. The entire Democrat Party and Senate, essentially, vetoed that bill, not once, not twice, not three times, like a dozen times, okay? And Nancy Pelosi continued to block that bill. Oh, are you telling me ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims? Are you telling me that the premises of progressivism and the pro-choice position, when left unaddressed, will grow nasty, nasty fruit? And are you telling me that people tend to work out the logic of their position through their choices, even if they're not fully aware of the worldview and premises they're operating off of? Yes, yes, yes. And now we are seeing some of the political and cultural consequences of that in the highest levels of government that are simply the natural conclusions of the premises of progressivism, the conclusions that the authors of this piece are saying, yeah, why not? 
why not deny the newborn a right to life as well? Well, nearly every senator in the Democrat Party today believes that as well. By <clears throat> demanding that born alive abortion survivors are not given protections. Wow. Wow. They continue here in their conclusion, and they say, if criteria such as the costs, social, psychological, economic, for the potential parents are good enough reasons for having an abortion even when the fetus is healthy, if the moral status of the newborn is the same as that of the fetus, and if neither has any moral value by virtue of being a potential person, then the same reasons which justify abortion should also justify the killing of the potential person when it is at the stage of a newborn, an infant, a little baby. Hmm. By the way, this is exactly what Peter Singer believes and defends, right? Peter Singer was sort of just the ideological fountainhead for the ideas being championed by these two philosophers. In his book, Practical Ethics, Singer states that if self-awareness determines value and newborns and fetuses lack self-awareness, then both fetuses and newborns are disqualified as persons. You can't arbitrarily draw a line at birth to spare the newborn because you feel a little bit more connected to the humanity of the newborn. Peter Singer acknowledges that in his book, Practical Ethics. As Jeff McMahon points out as well, it's like, oh gosh, the, the properties on which we're basing personhood come in varying degrees and would also disqualify certain born individuals as well. Lastly, they say this in their piece. They say, second, we do not claim that afterbirth abortions are good alternatives to abortion. Abortions at an earlier stage are the best option for both psychological and physical reasons. Interesting. So they say that, that, that there's no moral difference between killing a newborn and killing an unborn, but then they say abortions at the earlier stage are better. Better than what? Better than infanticide or afterbirth abortions or fourth trimester abortions. And they say what? For the psychological and physical reasons. Physical reasons. Oh, well, you can't mean the physical reasons of the unborn human. You, you said that they're potential persons and therefore have no rights. So what physical reasons? The mother. The, the physical reasons for the mother, they're saying. What are they assuming in that statement? That abortion is safer than childbirth. That's what they're assuming. They're saying it's safer physically for the mother to get an abortion at an earlier stage than later. Okay? So that's wrong. That's completely wrong. Okay, and there's this piece, we covered it with Dr. Brent Bowles one or two weeks ago. There's this study from uh, Reardon, I believe, uh, or Raymond and Grimes, uh, that claimed that abortion was 14 times safer than childbirth. <laughs> abortion is 14 times safer than childbirth. The study was complete bunk. We went through the reasons as to why it was with, with un, not, not accurate reporting of abortion data and maternal mortality rates. However, it is self-evident that childbirth is safer than abortion. We know that medication abortion through the pill can be four times more dangerous than surgical abortion. Okay, now let's talk about surgical abortion. Uh, you're talking about vacuums and forceps. You're talking about inserting those up a woman's birth canal. And if she's too far along, you have to forcibly dilate the cervix. You often do this blind, so you're not seeing what you're doing through an ultrasound-guided abortion, which means you could rip through her cervix, her uterine wall, and of course, um, uh, you could cause her to hemorrhage. Uh, and you're puncturing the amniotic sac, and then you're ripping limbs off of the child. None of this is safe for the mother, okay? You know what would be safer for the mother in every circumstance if she wants to kill her baby? Let every baby be born that is unwanted, and then kill him through infanticide. That would always be safer for the mother because childbirth is safer than abortion. <laughs> so if they were actually wanting to be consistent, they should be saying, uh, second, we... We, they say here, we do not claim that afterbirth abortions are good alternatives to abortion. Actually, you should be saying we do claim that afterbirth abortions are better alternatives than abortion because it's safer for mom. But they, they don't do that. If the physical safety of the mother was the overriding concern, then afterbirth abortion should be the norm. Um, but they don't, do, they don't say that because they do understand how heinous what they're suggesting means. What does all of this mean for us? Well, since the fall of man, groups of humans have always tried to exclude other groups of humans from being considered persons. This personhood debate is nothing, nothing new. In the Roman Empire, handicapped or diseased babies were abandoned outside in a practice that was called exposure. You would expose them to the elements and they would die because they weren't regarded as persons. During slavery in America, African Americans were enslaved because white persons 
regarded them as less than human or non-persons. And of course, Jews, the disabled, mentally handicapped, gypsies, and homosexuals were all regarded as less than human by the Nazis, were killed, tortured, and experimented on because they weren't persons. They were untermensch, the Nazis called them, subhuman. With our chronological snobbery, of course, we condemn such atrocities today. Yet some still want to employ the same reasoning to narrow the scope of personhood, who is and who is not a person. In fact, a 2012 decision by an Oregon jury awarded $3 million to a couple because their Down syndrome baby was not aborted by doctors um, and they, they weren't informed that their baby had Down syndrome. Oh, nuts. I would have killed my baby had I known he wasn't chrom uh, chromosomally perfect. Uh, the parents didn't believe their baby was worthy of life. And the, I guess the hospital or doctors were forced to reward this family with $3 million because some stupid degenerate eugenicist judge in the mold of Margaret Sanger decided that they were, they were deserving of damages for the fact that they, were, they birthed a baby with Down syndrome and weren't told beforehand that their baby had Down syndrome. The parents didn't believe the baby was worthy of life, and they would have aborted their baby had they known he or she had Down syndrome in the womb. In other words, you hear in the abortion industry, not compatible with life. Or to quote the Nazis, Lebens und Wertensleben, life unworthy of life. Anytime you hear the pro-aborts talk about the unborn baby is not compatible with life for whatever reason, they're, ju they're just paraphrasing the Nazis, Lebens und Wertensleben. Life unworthy of life, translated quite literally. So will doctors in Oregon begin killing babies in order to avoid malpractice suits? That's eh, a fair question, right? I don't want to be forced to pay out those types of damages for not telling a mother that her baby had Down syndrome uh, and then she gives birth to it and is all pissed off with me. Will, will doctors kill babies diagnosed with Down syndrome after they're born when they find out that it has Down syndrome and then just say that the baby didn't live in order to avoid lawsuits? My goodness, where does this lead? This is the culture of death. You know, G.K. Chesterton once said that when men have come to the edge of a precipice, it is the lover of life who has the spirit to leap backwards and only the pessimist who continues to believe in progress. <laughs> just going to progress. Progress, baby. Oh, yeah right off the cliff to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, you idiot, because you doubled down and insisted that your worldview and premises were the ones leading us into the progressive utopian future. And now you're dead. Yeah, now you're dead. It is the lover of life who jumps back from the precipice, right? Well, it is time that we as a society leap backwards, if it's not too late already, if we're not already falling to our deaths right now. It feels like we're living through the fall of the Republic, doesn't it? So much of that goes back to our failure to protect the pre-born and to attack and weed out the premises of progressivism and the premises that make abortion plausible to millions of Americans in the first place. The premise that not all humans are persons. And, and, and that the, the real you is not your body. It's not your human body. It, it's, it's something intangible. Oh, yeah, and those intangible things are certain mental characteristics and functions that come in varying degrees, which none of us share equally, so human equality is destroyed. The pastors, the pulpits, the Christian leaders of the society have refused to address these ideas, the rot that they represent, and now we're, we're experiencing the conclusions and consequences, right, of allowing those premises to operate and flourish in the first place. We'll close with this. Dr. Mildred Jefferson, who was, I believe, the first black woman to graduate from, uh, was it Oxford or Harvard School of Medicine, and helped found the National Right to Life Committee, <laughs> okay, in the 60s, and was trying to fight against what became the legalization of abortion at a federal level, said that today it is the unborn child. Tomorrow, it is likely to be the elderly and those who are incurably ill. Who knows but that a little later, it may be anyone whose moral and political views do not fit into the distorted new order. Hmm, right? What's she saying? She's saying it's in the small things that the rot grows. Allow bad ideas to take plant initially and they will flourish additional consequences you don't like. She's kind of paraphrasing Martin Niemöller, part of the Confessing Church with Bonhoeffer, right? Who says, first they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak up because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the socialists, and I did not speak up because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak up because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak up for me. That's what Mildred Jefferson is saying. She's saying, today it is the unborn child. Tomorrow it is likely those who are what? a burden to 
those who don't want to care for them, the elderly or those who are incurably ill. Who knows but that a little later, it might be you, with your political and moral views that do not fit into the distorted new order, the theocracy of progressivism, the only state religion in America today, who is increasingly treating the dissenters of their religion as heretics who will be thrown out into utter darkness where there will also be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What kind of country are you going to hand to your children and grandchildren? What kind of legacy do you want to live? You can no longer say that you did not know, okay? <laughs> to quote William Wilberforce. I've shared this with you. I've exposed it to you. You see what's happening. We've been sowing bloodshed in the womb, and now we're reaping it in the streets. And every other right we've taken for granted is deteriorating as well. And the authors of this piece, after birth abortions, why should the baby live? We're saying this 10 years ago, that any situation in which an unborn child is killed should also be a situation in which a newborn child is killed, which will one day become any situation in which you can be killed. Wake up. If you enjoy this show, head on over to iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, give us a rating and review. Let us know what you think. Uh, if you want to support us, go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Become a patron of the show. You get perks and uh, you help us expand the production value, number of episodes, guests we can bring on the show, and type of content we create. If you want to uh, connect with me online, follow me on Facebook, Instagram. Go to sethgruber.com to sign up for my newsletter to see my speaking schedule or to book me for an event as 2022 is already getting booked up and my January is already getting very busy as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. <laughs>